welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome back to another Knock On Podcast. This is actually the first podcast where some of you are watching right now live via Instagram Live. Um, kind of pulling double duty here, doing a live feed for some of the Instagrammers. And obviously, uh, for those of you who are on Instagram, you saw that I made a post this morning asking what questions you guys wanted for one on or 101. This is Knock On Podcast 101, so I thought it would be an awesome podcast to talk about archery 101, and I wanted you all to decide what we were going to talk about. So here we go. Question one's from Daniel McKenzie and wants to know how to change holding weight. So changing holding weight can be done several ways. Um, obviously you can change your holding weight if your bow has the ability to change let off. So the difference between say a 65 or 75% let off on a bow is obviously if you have a higher let off, you're going to have less holding weight. So, um, that's really the easiest way. Some cam systems have, um, differences in their actual pegs or their stops um i've got my bow back here so what i'm going to do is for those of you watching on the live feed i'm just going to show you here quick so some companies have different sizes of cam stops so this particular cam stop that's on my bow that i'm shooting right now it's actually a little bit larger of a cam stop so technically it touches the cable a little bit sooner and because it touches the cable sooner, um, that cam stop is going to give you a little bit more holding weight. Um, I'm actually right now in a limbo with my personal bow because I'm struggling to find a holding weight as well that I really like um, for this X3 cam that I'm using on my Prevail right now. Um, I actually couldn't decide whether I wanted the 65% or the 75% let off. The 75% feels just a little bit too much. The 65% doesn't quite feel like enough. Or, sorry about that. It doesn't feel like I have enough valley. I should um, change how I'm saying that. It doesn't feel like I have enough um, holding weight when I'm at the 75%. And it doesn't feel like I have enough valley when I'm at the 65%. So I've been playing around and if you're like me and you're in that limbo where you want to have a little bit better valley, um, you want to maybe have a little bit more holding weight, but you don't necessarily have the option to make that change with your cam, then the next step that you're going to want to do is actually change it using your strings and cables. So the rule of thumb there is if you serve your cable with a smaller serving diameter, you will increase your let off and you'll also help your valley. Um, the other thing is if you want the opposite, if you have a bow that feels like you, you know, when you pull back, it really 
falls into a valley and it really is sitting back there with not much holding weight and you almost feel like you can practically let go of the string before it wants to go forward. Um, in that case, you've got an extreme let off situation. And personally, I feel like when you have really low holding weight, for example, if you pull back and it just feels like there's nothing back there holding that string, it just feels like it's super, super easy. You're, you start to have the ability to be very lazy in your shot, um, lackadaisical in your shot. So you want to have some holding weight there. And in the, in, uh, I think podcast 98 or 99, I had Dave Step on with me. We talked about holding weight and how that affects your ability to maintain your how steady you hold your bow. And him and I have both always got along really well between 14 and a half to 16 pounds. Um, so... On this particular bow, this set of strings and cables that I made, um, I actually went with a smaller diameter um, serving on my cables in hopes that I could increase my valley just a little bit. But then once I did it, I went a little bit too far. So I felt like, you know, I almost felt like I was shooting my hunting bow. And, you know, with a tension style release or a hinge style release, um, it actually, it feels like you move around a lot more if you don't have holding weight. Um, I actually want to get uh, my good buddy Steve Anderson on a podcast here coming up. Steve just shot really, really well in Vegas. And Steve is on the other side of the spectrum as Dave and I. Steve really likes a super um, demanding bow setup. He really, really wants a bow that it takes a lot to shoot it. Um, he has to be on the top of his game, pulling against the wall hard, pulling through his shots hard. Otherwise the bow gets away from him. And in that situation, some archers like that if they're shooting all the time. And for me, I don't get to shoot every single day. So I feel like I really struggle when I'm shooting a super, um, demanding bow. This bow is right now that's behind me. You're, for those of you listening to the podcast, can't see it, but those of you on the live feed can see um, the bow that I brought in here today. Um, I'm shooting right at about 16 and a half pounds on this build as it stands right now, and I'm not really getting along with it. And I'll tell you what's happening. So what's happening is the longer I'm in my shot, I actually start to come forward just a little bit off that back wall and I end up, if I make a, a shot that's say about 80%, if I judge my shots from 80 to 100%, if my shot's at about 80% or less, I miss the Vegas 10 out the top at 11 o'clock. Um, I've tried creep tuning. Um, some of the advanced listeners understand what creep tuning is. I can creep tune some, and I've got it good where it's it's close, but, but with shooting a 2315, it still misses. I'll shoot a 9. So either I have to be 100% super dynamic on this cam right now, or it's not working. So what I've done is I've actually, um, they're behind me over there, I've got the SVX cam. So this is the new spiral cam. And so what I'm going to do is on this SVX cam, for those of you who are Hoyt listeners, on this 40, I'm going to try an XVX cam. I'll actually lose about five to six pounds 
by changing the cams out. So right now on this particular bow, I'm shooting 60 pounds. Like I said, I like it. I don't love it. I'm being honest. Um, so when what I found is with a more advanced cam, like say an XVX or a Spiral or Turbo Cams, uh, depending on your style, PSE makes several different cams that are a little bit more aggressive. Um, I just find that as long as I drop my poundage down, I can shoot those and they work out really, really well. So um, I'm going to go ahead and keep my same limbs. I'm just going to change strings and cables. I'm going to lower my diameter just a little bit from where I'm at right now. And I'm going to do that by either dropping two strands out of the string or out of the cables, or by going to the next size smaller serving diameter. Um, and that's what I'm going to build for my strings and cables with this XVX cam. So I'm probably going to be shooting this Prevail 40 with an XVX cam at about 53 pounds for my indoor setup. Um, I'm going to gain a little bit of speed, but I'll give that up because I'm going to be going to less weight. And again, it's finding that happy medium. Um, I feel like the bow is holding and shooting really good right now. However, my bad shots are not saving the 10. So I really, when you talk about how do you get a forgiving bow setup, this is what you want to do. I have a bow that I really enjoy shooting right now, but what happens is when I don't make a, a 90 to 100% shot, I'm missing out the top. So just the style of this particular setup I need to eliminate that by finding a system that's a little bit more forgiving for my particular style. So those are the ways that you do it, buddy. Appreciate the uh, question, uh, Daniel McKenzie, 79. And hopefully that helps you out with holding weight. Um, the good thing about custom strings and cables and actually what takes so much time when I do um, super high-end custom builds for people is... I actually work on different strings and cable specs, different diameters, different strand counts, and really find the ideal set for the particular cam that I'm using. So remember with this, um, I want everyone listening to remember that most bow companies, hey everybody watching, appreciate it. Um, most bow companies are going to build a string and cable set that gives you the best performance from a marketing point of view and advertising. So they're going to, well, there's a couple things. One, they need speed, okay? Because they're going to advertise speed. They know all you guys are going to check speed and you're going to be, you know, you're going to be really paying attention to that five or six feet a second difference that you may or may not see. So they're trying to find a material and a diameter that gives you good speed. You all, they also want to have um, a string build that makes the bow feel good when you shoot it. So if you if you lower the strand count too much to where it's faster, then what happens is the speed will increase, but so will the vibration. And certain materials, just the actual characteristics of the fiber of the material will carry vibration at a different frequency. So some of the materials that don't have any stretch at all, they're going to have they're going to be a lot more rigid and they're going to carry vibration more just like what your stabilizer would. If you think about shooting a soft stabilizer, one that has flex or one that has a doinker type device on the end to where that vibration pretty much travels out of that you're not going to feel near as much vibration as when something's rigid and it's just going like this. 
that frequency goes up and it re resonates all the way back to the handle, then goes up the handle, down the string to your hand. So, you know, it's almost like a ripple effect. If you have a soft stabilizer, um, that all of that vibration resonates out the end and it doesn't transfer back into the riser up and back to you or through your hand and back into your shoulder. Um, all that stuff's you know, factors in. So you really want to pick a material. I remember years ago when um, S4 first came out, it was 100% Vectran. And S4 was really rigid. It had zero stretch, zero creep. Um, but when you shot that thing, some of the older bows, it would sound like a 22 going off just because it didn't maintain, it didn't help resonate that vibration out of the bow right away. It stayed and it was just like, bang. and so that's the characteristics. That's why some of the newer material like the BCYX, it actually has a blend of Vectran and a blended Dyneema so that those materials can give you some of the performance that you want and not make it not necessarily make your feel your bow feel like it has more vibration um, so hopefully that got you on the right track several things you can do um, tried to go into detail for you either change your modules pick a different cam or cable diameter um, increasing cable lowers holding weight and will shorten your valley decreasing cable diameter will give you less holding weight and it will increase your valley so hey everybody appreciate you guys chiming in i can't like multitask and watch uh what you guys are doing on there and do the podcast so next question here is for um plano purist um is asking keep talking back tension i'm determined to get it um shot sequence uh, oh, you've got a whole bunch of questions here. So I'll just touch a little bit on back tension. I scrolled through here and I saw several different um, questions. Actually, there's several different questions here talking about back tension, talking about the silverback. Just so everyone knows, silverbacks are shipping right now. Emails are going out. Um, tons of emails are going out. If you get that email, you got 48 hours to claim your silverback. Otherwise, it falls to the next person that's on the list. Um, right now, Sharon and James are cranking those suckers out. So make sure if you get that email, you act on it right or right away. Um, and just so everyone knows, I totally plan on doing some very, very specific live feeds with the Silverbacks. So the reason I'm not doing that yet, um, and also with the rest, there's two specific live feeds I want to do showing everyone some very detailed stuff about both of those, how to use them properly, etc. But I really am trying to hold off until I know we get our back order cleared up on that. Um, so pay attention to that. Also, while I'm on the subject, tomorrow, tomorrow evening, probably at seven o'clock. So that's going to be Tuesday, the 14th. Wait, I can't do that. Nope, I can't do that. That's Valentine's Day. We're going to have to change it to Wednesday. Um, okay, tomorrow's Valentine's Day, so I can't be doing a live feed. I've got to take Sharon to dinner. But um, Wednesday, let's do a live feed. I've got a really important live feed. I've got an important announcement. I've got some really cool stuff that I want to clue everybody in on. This is going to be a really, really important live feed for everyone to watch. So let's plan on that for the 15th at 7 o'clock Central Time. Um, 
going to want to make sure if you're part of the Knock On Nation, you follow. This is a big announcement, and I think you guys are going to be happy about that for sure. But um, I do want to get into more detail about back tension because there's so many of you out there that are making this change, and right now is the time. It's the perfect time to change over um, from what you've always done to try something new. Just digging in my quiver right here. Um, gonna pull out my different releases that I've got for those of you watching the, the live feed on Instagram. Um, so right here's a silverback out of my quiver. Funny enough, I actually made a design change to the silverback. So those of you getting the new version, you'll notice a change. I'm I've still got the old version. I'll see if someone makes a uh, makes a post. Whoever notices what the difference is between the new one and the old one, make a post. But it's pretty cool. Um, use hashtag new silverback. That'll be good. But um, when it comes to back tension, I really want people to use this downtime of the year to focus on getting over some of your fears and some of your anxieties that you have in shooting. And really, the benefit of the silverback is identifying problems. This is a release that it's going to show you more flaws before it shows you perfection. And that's an important part of learning with anything. You know, if you try something new, and if you're competitive, and if you're truly wanting to get better at it, then what happens is when it points out something that maybe isn't isn't what you want and also something that you didn't know, then at that time you have the the opportunity to do it better. And with back tension, a lot of people make this really, really complicated. And the other thing people do that's, that's a problem is you try to push it too far too fast. Um, I've actually got a student of mine down in Texas that got a silverback, um, although I wanted to work with them here first. They decided to try it themselves, and then they already sent me a text last night saying, I'm shooting really good at 40 and 50, and right away, I was adamant about get back to the closer distance because one problem that most people have when it comes to back tension is the further you go back, the more you're going to see movement, and that's natural. So people try to minimize the movement, and when that happens, when you're trying to minimize movement on your front bow arm, is your back half is going to really start to slow down, and your timing of how you come through that shot. What's so nice about learning back tension up close is really getting into a zone, getting into the timing, um, and getting into a sequence of making all your shots happen at the same exact type of rate. This is really critical, and if you watch people, you know, last weekend, we the Vegas shoot happened. Congratulations to Mike for winning Vegas for the second time. Congratulations to everyone there that shot 900s. Um, super, super big feat to be able to do that. But when you watch those people shooting, when you see the ones that are really in sequence to where when they draw back and that release is executing at about the same exact time, every single shot it's not because they're making that shot happen it's because the good archers that shoot with true 
unanticipated shots, when they're in the rhythm, that stuff naturally fires and goes off without them having to think about it. So it's going to be critical that you use this downtime and you use your learning time with back tension to really focus on timing and rhythm. And sometimes just counting in your head and actually just counting 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, 3, 1,000, 4, 1,000, 5, 1,000 as you're pulling through makes a big, big difference. You know, if you're sitting there focusing on the fact that you're not holding good or focusing on the aim, then a lot of times that back half starts to lock up, the front half starts to collapse, you start to hold rather than being down and coming through. Those of you watching right now, I'm kind of showing on the screen the difference. So, you know, there's not much difference between this right here and this right here, right? This is pretty minimal, but this is a huge difference in being able, for me, being able to shoot a 9 or being able to shoot a 10. That's a 10. That's a 9. That's the truth. You know, we're talking that and that. Um, if I'm up here and I'm holding, then I'm creeping and if I'm creeping or if I'm not solid on the back wall, then a lot of my arrows just spit right off the top. So you got to be able to focus on keeping that shoulder in the correct position and just trusting what that front half is doing and coming through that shot entirely. This is critical and it's really, really important that anyone at home working on back tension focuses on the small things first. Keep in mind that you know it does take anywhere from three weeks to a month to create a habit. And that's if you're doing it the same all the time. So what I want you to do if you're focusing on back tension is don't just say, I want to learn to shoot the release. I want you to focus on a very, very small goal. That's why each week I've been given um, goals of the week so that people can really focus on one specific thing. This week, let's make the goal pulling through. That's going to be the that's going to be the focus. So, we're going to we're going to focus on counting when you get to your anchor position, when you bring your nose down and you acquire the string, strings at the tip of your nose, and either you put your thumb to the trigger or you let your thumb off the safety. I want you to just focus on counting 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, 3, 1,000, 4, 1,000, 5, and pull through and really try to focus on pulling through at an equal pace to where as you're counting, you'll start to get that shot to fire at the same exact time. Don't focus on the front. Only focus on the count. Focus on the cadence. Focus on the count. That's really, really important. For those of you watching the live feed right now, I'm just going to show you something really, really simple. So I'm not standing up right now. I'm sitting down. But, you know, if you want to talk about, um, if you want to talk about back tension, I'm just more or less I'm showing an exercise. If you're standing, I'm sitting. But if you're standing and you have your hands at your side and you just raise your hands up to your side and from there, just bend your, your pulling elbow, just bend it and hinge it in till your arm and your hand is touching the center of your chest. So the way most people's anatomy are, if you bend your hand in towards your chest, the tip of your middle finger should be right in the center of your sternum. So if you have the tip of your finger on that sternum, 
if you keep your finger on your chest, meanwhile slide your fingers to the outside of your pectoral muscle or your chest muscle on that same side, that, that motion is back tension. That right there is back tension. The only difference is our hand is inverted at full draw. But more or less this motion right here, that's the same exact small muscle group that's in the center of the back back there that activates that shot. It's a very, very minimal muscle and a lot of people make it much, much too complicated. You really want to just raise that bow to the target, draw back, anchor, put the string on the tip of your nose, center your peep, and then just no different than if you had your finger on the center of your sternum, you just want to focus on sliding that back. So for me, I like to, as I'm counting and pulling through, I'm just dragging or pulling that index finger that's just under my jawline. I'm pulling that back, no different than sliding my finger along my pec muscle. So there's a little back tension talk for all of you. And I know that one of the questions um, that was in there was for beginners. Um, trying to get back to my questions here. Someone had asked for beginners, is it better to start them out on one release um, or the other? So um, let's see. They Actually, it's Edge160 said, um, would you rather put shooters on a Carter Evolution or the Silverback for Target Panic um, along with people wanting to learn? So both of the releases really function the same. They function off tension. Um, so I definitely don't want to say anything negative about the other releases out there that activate using tension release. I just know that for me, what I like about the Silverback is that by utilizing two fingers, you're actually focusing your pull, utilizing less things to really worry about. When you start to add three fingers or four fingers, you can actually leverage the release. You can turn the release and start to pull through on a different angle. And really the way this release works is by building pressure on the loop on the hook. So it's important that you're coming through the same all the time. And this is also it'll start to identify other issues. Now, if I'm working with people and moving forward, once the new website launches, um, you're gonna have the ability or you're gonna have the option to actually subscribe to being able to watch some of my coaching feeds. So this is when you're gonna really be able to see some of this coaching in action because what I'm good at is watching someone shoot and knowing exactly what happened without them being able to having to tell me i'm able to watch them shoot and say okay so here's what happened on that and you start to identify people's misses and really the key to being a good archer is learning how to minimize the miss and then not do it again not repeating it the key to being a great archer is when you make that one mistake don't make it the rest of the day um, you know, and in Vegas, I can guarantee you most of the, well, I guess I can't guarantee and say most, but I would have to assume that everybody there that shot a 900 had one shot that didn't feel so good. The difference is they got away with it. And the other 300 people that shot 899s, they, they didn't get away with it. So once you get away with that mistake, you want to avoid doing it again. So 
What's really nice about the Silverback having two fingers is it eliminates other mistakes that can happen, like position of angle or rocker position. So if you have your hand, if your pinkies are being are pulling more time than another time, that's your rocker position. So your rocker position changes where the loop is on the hook, whether it's on the inside of the hook or the outside of the hook, all that changes leverage and it changes how it comes off the string. So you really have to focus on your rocker position and then you have to focus on your angle, um, how it sits on your face too. So by minimizing your amount of fingers, I'm able to really work you through, here's exactly what you feel. And you're really feeling two things. You're feeling two fingers and how they sit on your face and how you pulling those along the face. If you start to put those other fingers on there, then if you're like all of a sudden struggling with lefts or struggling with low lefts, then we we have to really start to factor in, okay, was the low left from dropping the bow arm? Was the low left from falling out of your peep sight? Or was that low left because you're using more pinky and you're coming down away from the face? Um, I was working with one of my guys, Justin Tab, um, this past week. Justin came up for some one-on-one lessons and we worked on a whole new bow build for him and we also worked on um, shot execution. I watched him shoot and what we did, it's not that I made him leave here being a perfect archer. What I did was I left, had him leave here identifying one or two of his biggest trouble areas. And so I left, I had him leave here and said, okay, here's your homework. If you miss that direction, this is why. So don't do it the next arrow or the arrow after that. Really focus on how do I just keep from avoiding that error. And believe me, over time, it's definitely going to start to identify itself. And what I really like about the Silverback, more so than the Evolution, is just that it has less fingers um, and then obviously there's a little tweak that I made to the design now that's, that actually helps it be a little bit more consistent. Um, so the next question here is from, uh, James Ruzi, I believe he wanted to know the top 10 dog breeds. And I, I actually answered that on Instagram. It's labs, 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 labadors, labador retrievers, and silver labs that's the top 10 right there um so let's see the next question here is from benoit peters um he's asking is um is there other ways to determine yardage on targets without a range finder so there's different ways to do it depending on the type of target so some targets there's there's what's called systems okay if you're shooting um, a symmetrical target, like a circular target like this that I'm holding up for those watching the live feed on Instagram, um, if you have a circular target, you can actually build a system that allows you to know how to range targets based off where your pin sits on the target at each distance. And you do that by using the edge of your scope and you align it on the edge of the target 
and then you see where your pin is sitting in that target. Okay, at a further distance, the target's gonna look much smaller. It's gonna be out further, so when you center, your dot is gonna sit on a different line on that target. So you're gonna have to start to learn your system. Some people use the lines of their bubble. Some people use their pins. I always use my pins, but more or less, if you have a perfectly round target, and this is what field archers do, they learn where their pin sits on each target size. So a 20, 40, 60, and 80 centimeter face. And what you learn is, like with field archery, the 20 centimeter target, you can it's only allowed to be positioned at a certain distance from you know 15 meters, 25 meters, or you know, each target face has its max. So you have to learn one thing you have to do, you step to the target, you have to identify what target face it is because obviously if you pick the wrong size piece of paper overall, you're not gonna be able to do this system, but you can really get good at it. And you might be able to just Google search, um, Google search ranging unmarked in field archery, and you'll find some little tips out there. There used to not be any, but people have finally spilled the beans on how we used to do it. Um, I've actually got a little better secret way to do it that's it's all based off math to where I don't have to memorize where my pin sits, but I'll save that for, um, I'll save that for a, for a special video podcast for some of you followers out there. Um, the other thing to do if you're a 3d shooter, some of the tips that I've got is, um, actually learning what your eyesight is capable of. One thing that really helped me in 3d was learning how far a target could be before I couldn't see the actual rings or before I couldn't see, say, clear writing on, for example, on a McKenzie target, it's got the McKenzie logo stamped on its butt. So I really knew, and for me, as soon as it got to 36 yards, I could not perfectly see the actual lines like on a 10 ring or a 12 ring. So if I stepped up to a target and I knew that I could not quite make out that that look, then then I just had to know right away, well, I know it's over 36, and then do your best to judge it. There's lots of different ways of judging. I personally like to use the ground on that podcast I did with Dave Stepp. Um, we talked about that. You can go back and and listen to that podcast. It was a good one. Um, the other thing too that you can do is you can actually make two marks on your binoculars. You can make a mark on the actual solid part of the binocular and then another mark on your dial. And if you have high-end binoculars, you can start to actually figure out a very, very close range based off your focus dial and where that dial is positioned. It's just like turning the focus ring on a camera. It's not super precise, but for a hunting situation, it would definitely be able to keep you um, within the kill zone without a doubt. So there's a few little questions or a few little tips for you that you can put to use. Um, Let's say, uh, let's see here. Next question is from Jason Wren. He's saying, uh, when should you put your sight back on your bow after blind bale shooting? So 
really that is going to depend on how you are progressing with coming through. If you've got target panic, if you've got some form of anxiety, um, if you feel like as soon as you put your sight on that either the timing of your shot, which we talked about earlier, if the timing changes or if you start to feel like a surge of anxiety, um, this is something that I worked with my buddy Tyler. Um, we were in Oklahoma. I taught him how to shoot on a feed, a live feed a few days ago and, uh, or last week, I guess it was. And he was doing really, really good. And it got to the point where I actually put a, um, first I started him on a blank bail. Then I put a target on the bail, told him just to look through his peep at the target. It actually took him probably... 40 to 50 arrows or several hours before I could tell he was just comfortable just staring at that gold and going through a shot. Once his timing got really good, I said, okay, that's great. Let's call it a day. Um, the next day, he was pretty eager to shoot, and I intentionally said, um, hey, just think about a lot of those good shots that you made yesterday. Let's. Um, we don't really have time right now, but you know, we're going to get to this practice here coming up um, later this afternoon. So maybe just think about that. And that was intentional. I wanted him to visualize his good shots. It makes a huge difference being able to visualize what you want to see pulling back, being comfortable looking at that gold, going through his shots. So he did a good job of visualizing that. And then what happened was as soon as we went to shoot, um, I could tell that he was going through his targets or going through his shots really good while staring at the target. So then I made the decision to go ahead and put a sight on his bow. And when I first put it on, I took the target away again and I just said, okay, now I want you to just look at the pin. Don't focus on the pin, but just kind of look through the pin and then just go through your shot. So he did that. We did that for about 30 minutes. He looked really good. So I said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and put a big target up. So I put a big target up right in front of his, you know, and this is, I consider this blank bail because we're literally sitting at five yards. Um, and then as soon as I put that target up, even though the gold was probably eight inches around, I could see that when he let off, he kind of had a little trimmer and then he tried to pull through the shot really fast. So I just immediately made a correction and said, listen, you have to do the exact thing that we've been working on. So I went ahead and removed the site once again and pretty much stepped him back in the sequence and in the process and really focused on having him grind that out another day. And he ended up um, hunting a full day after Jim and I was hunting just simply because it took him an extra day to be comfortable with putting a site on his bow, holding a pin on a target, and making good enough shots for us to sight them in. So that's when you know, when you feel 100% like you can just sit there and do that all day with the same timing, the same rhythm, uh, you don't feel any type of anxiety, you don't feel any type of unease, then that's the time to go ahead and put that target up or put your sight on the bow. And then same thing, don't be afraid to start close and work your way back. Um, I mean, I really, my best years shooting were years that I traveled a lot and all I ever did was have my release in my pocket and a string and I just focused on coming to full draw, kind of feeling myself right in that full draw position 
and then just coming off my safety and just really visualizing what I wanted to see through my sight window. I want to see my pin sitting still. I want to see it. I I actually visualize it being still, but also slightly moving around. Um, This is important. I'm trying to find something here to use for people watching. Um, So say this is my pin. You know, I visualize myself letting that pin move because that's that happens. I mean, it does move around and you have to be okay with that. The main thing is if you're not okay with your pin being in the center of the target, then you need to realize you shouldn't be okay with hitting the middle of the target because if you're going to want to just rush your shot as soon as that pin goes by, then that's a problem. You have to just allow it to do its thing. Some days it might sit there just like this. Some days it might be like this. Some days if you got wind, it, it might be doing this. But the best thing you can do is just realize that that's part of archery. We're not benched up. We're not shooting off sandbags. Um, this is like a primal medieval sport of pulling back and trying to aim this device that's at full tension while you're at full draw and then let a, um, a long projectile rip through the air. So you got to be okay with, with being primal that way, just letting it do its thing. Now, I know when people start to really focus on tournaments and competition. You can't do that and still score well. I realize that. But there's very few listeners that I have to where I know they're doing 100% of what I'm saying. Um, So once you do get get the security of knowing that your pin can float... Your shot timings are good. You're just really focusing on on execution. I promise you guys, everybody listen, I promise you that the arrows find the center more when you're being dynamic. When you're continual, when you're fluid, when you're dynamic, that's when it happens. You look at a recurve shooter, you know, they're literally pulling, pulling, pulling the whole time. And when that clicker goes off, they're letting go. And mainly the importance of that clicker is not to tell them like that they have to fire because the pin's in the middle. The importance of the clicker is with a recurve bow, the further you pull the bow, the higher the poundage gets. It's not like a compound where the poundage is sitting there at the same exact weight. With the recurve, if you pull it back an inch further this time, or if you don't pull it back um, and it's an inch shorter, or if it's a half inch shorter or a half inch longer, you got to remember every inch is increasing poundage as you pull it back. Every inch shorter, it's less poundage, so your arrow isn't going to cast as as good as if you're shooting max poundage. So there's a couple different things there that really, really factor in to whether or not that's accurate. So... Uh, let's see here. Uh, next question we've got is from Base Arles, I guess. Uh, he says, I've got a seven-year-old that's right-handed but left eye dominant. Should I keep him right-handed or and give him an eye patch or should I switch him to left hand? I say now's the time to switch the kid to left-handed. A good friend of mine, Thomas, 
um, from up in Wisconsin. You guys probably saw him in first few seasons of the first few seasons of the show. Thomas actually had an arrow break. He borrowed someone's bow. This is important safety announcement. He was at a range. Asked he had someone had a bow that he really wanted to shoot. The guy had just shot all of his arrows in the same target. And he said, Hey, could I try your bow? So they pulled the guy pulled the arrows, literally handed Thomas an arrow. They never checked it, never inspected it. He shot and the whole arrow went through his hand. Um, had to go through a couple different surgeries, but what happened is when he's at full draw, his front hand would really tremor and shake. So he just bit the bullet and switched to left-handed, and it didn't take that long, and he's way, way better off. There's a lot of people that struggle with this eye dominancy thing, and you really, unless you're wanting him to have to wear an eye patch every time he wants to shoot a bow, which most likely if it's a kid, he's not going to want to look different, you know, unless you dress him up like Jack Sparrow. He's not going to want to look different in front of his friends. He's probably not going to want to do it that way, and he's going to wish that you taught him the right way to begin with. So, and you never know, maybe that eye dominancy could change later on as well. Um, especially if it's like just astigmatism or something for right now. So that's my advice to you. Just get them going left-handed and I don't think he'll ever look back. Um, so let's see this. Monko says, um, having only shot a wrist strap release, what is the best way to get into back tension releases on a budget? Um, he says he'd buy a bunch if he wasn't having to buy his house. Well, you don't need a bunch. You only need one. And so, you know, the thing is, what I can tell you is with releases, cheap ones are half the price. But they're also worth a quarter of the price when you go to sell that thing and realize that you bought a cheap one. And you're not going to get anything for selling it. And you're going to have to, it's pretty much going to make a good one that much more expensive for you. So I would say try to find one on eBay or Archery Talk or somewhere like that if you're wanting a used one. Uh, you know, you may, I don't know if, you know, sometimes you can call Carter, ask them if they have any blems or something like that. I know that um, we're actually probably gonna we've been pretty pretty specific about going through our silverbacks and um pulling out the blems so when we've had blems or even with knock two it's we had somewhere the the logo was well actually i'm shooting one right now so um yeah the one where the logo i was trying to show the people at home but where, where the logo's off center just a little bit um I went ahead and marked those down in price, and maybe that's something you should look out for. Um, keep an eye out for, you know, something with a little cosmetic flaw, um, and maybe that'll help you. But I can tell you, if you're really on a budget, then focus on shooting what you have in a better way. And you can always go um, on YouTube and or on the Knock on Archery YouTube site and search john dudley mastering the release aid and i'll show you quickly the best way to shoot three different types of release aids um so if you've got a handheld if you've got a hinge if you've got a caliper style whichever one you've got um i show you how to shoot it right and you can literally focus on that and move yourself closer to the target focus on execution 
more than where your arrows are hitting in the target. I'm telling you, the number one mistake people are making right now is that they really want to see results on paper. And all my students that come here are going to tell you, I ne- I wouldn't be able to tell you what any of my students score. I never focus on score. I score them on execution. And if they're executing, then I'm happy. If they're not executing, then I know that nothing's going to end up going the way that they want. So everyone watching, um, I appreciate it. I can't read your comments at the same time as all these here. So I apologize. Um, let's see here. Uh, Bowhunter2512 says, More funny moments from the old days like crapping behind a target. And only having one sock on on the podium. <laughs> well, the bad thing is, um, usually, usually every few tournaments I have something that upsets my stomach, and I think it's because I've really gotten the habit of eating so clean. So I'll give you another story that's on the same subject without getting too bad. But um, I was actually on the bus going from um, our hotel where the U.S. we had just got through shooting at a world championship. And I, I can't remember if we were in Poland or Croatia or somewhere. But the bus had to leave in order to be at the airport. A lot of people had early morning flights the day after the tournament. So the bus left this hotel at like 3 in the morning. And we're, we're flying around on these zigzaggy roads. Um, and actually, since the tournament was over, I made the mistake of not really being careful about what I was eating. Um, Normally during tournaments when I travel, I pack a lot of food that I feel really comfortable with. Um, Ones that I can get through customs without getting the rubber glove. And we were probably about an hour from the hotel on this real zigzaggy road. And all of a sudden the bus was totally black. Everyone in there was sleeping. Um, it, you know, we had had the award ceremony, most people had partied and I just had this terrible feeling in my stomach. And I looked at one of, um, the U S teammates that I was with, uh, it was actually Sally Wonderly. Um, and it was Vic Wonderly's sister. And I said, Oh man, I wonder if they have a bathroom on here. And she's like, I don't know. And she's like, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not. So I jumped up and ran up to the bus driver and said, Hey, I need you to pull over quick. And he's like, no, we missed the airport. And I said, listen, there's going to be a bigger problem if, (laughs) if you don't pull over. So we pulled over. I pretty much jumped out because the bus stopped. Everyone started waking up and was wondering what's going on. I luckily I was able to kind of run out of vision of the of the bus. Came back, all was good. Um, normally, when I'm traveling like that, I've always that's one that's one training one travel tip I'll tell you. If you're a world traveler or if you're traveling all the time, the best thing you can do is always have a pack of baby wipes in your backpack. That's like key but um so i got back on the bus it was one of those deals i think we've all been there where um you you do the first one knowing that it's not over with so we started going again and sure enough about 
10, 15 minutes later, the hair was standing up on the back of my neck. And I was just sitting there clamping down with everything I could. I knew we had about another hour and a half to, to get to this airport. And there's probably 60 people on this tour bus or more. And Sally's like, are you okay? And I said, no, I gotta, I gotta, you gotta pull over right now. And she's like, should I go tell him? And I said, yeah, I don't think I can get up. And we were sitting like right by the main exit to the door. So she went up there and I could see her like arguing with the guy finally pulls over and I just dashed off that bus. That time I didn't, I didn't make it out of sight of the people that were on there. (laughs) And but when I got back on the bus, people were starting to feel sorry for me because I knew I was really hurting and I was apologizing to everyone. Um, so we started going again, and sure enough, we got about 15 minutes down the road again, and I just, I pretty much just ran to the front and just grabbed the guy's latch and just opened that door up. There was no waiting for talking about this at that point. And I ran out the bus, and we were actually like maybe a half a mile before this town and when I ran out the bus we were the only thing out the side of the bus was a sidewalk so and by that time it was daylight everyone on the bus was awake and they're all thinking holy cow here he goes again and granted I had this was this was actually my first international tournament ever so a lot of these people had no idea who I was (laughs) they just know that Obviously, I had bowel problems. So when I ran out the bus, I could see that there was a sidewalk. So I'm either going to do this three feet from the bus or I've got to like do something. So I just went, there was a, there was about a six foot high set of hedge bushes. And I ended up just running off that bus and literally jumping through these hedges while grabbing around my waistband and just pulling my pants down. Keep in mind, I knew that I was getting ready to be on about a 16-hour flight back home. Um, So I, I was trying to make sure that I didn't have any accidents. And as I jumped through the hedge, I realized that we were actually on a cliff. And when I went through the hedge, I could see that it was literally a cliff. And I actually remember at that point, we were in Croatia. We were in the mountains of Croatia in this small little village. And as I was going through, I reached out both hands and grabbed this bush and just like was pretty much just dangling off these limbs and just doing what I had no control of doing. And I remember um, Dave Cousins actually came running off the bus because he had saw it and actually thought that I had, he must have been able to see that that was a drop. So he actually came running to the bottom of the bus and he's like, dude are you okay? And I said, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. I'm like, I just got to pull myself up. So I literally had to like pull myself back up. But luckily it was one of those classic for those of you who've been there and who have had um, really bad issues with uh, diarrhea. It was three and over with, but that third one literally almost killed me. And yeah, once again, everyone at the tournament had a real delightful first impression of me. So, um, let's see here. Gonna get, uh, get to a next question. Skynet KC. Um, 
I'd love to hear a detailed answer on why you do not spine align your arrows. So what he's talking about is on arrows, there's going to be a what they call a high spine. So on your arrows, there's going to be one part of your arrow that's going to have a little bit more density on it. So the way a lot of people check these is they'll take their arrow shafts They'll float them in water, and the heavy part of the spine will f- sink to the bottom, right? So let's just say this vein here was, and you don't want to do it with the fletched arrow. You want it to be a raw shaft. But let's just say this part of the shaft here is the heaviest. It'll stay to the bottom. So what a lot of people do is they'll, so- they'll put them in water, and then they'll take a, a marker or a Sharpie, and then they'll just make a mark on the top of that shaft, so that you know where the weak, the weakest part of the spine is. And then what a lot of people do is a lot of people want to fletch on the high side of that spine. Now, what I do is I really cull through my arrows. Um, I can tell by I can tell by spinning my arrows. And this one, I don't know if you can hear that, probably not. The point is if when you spin your arrow on your on your fingers. If it feels like glass, then technically your spine should be dang near perfect. I call through a ton of my arrows, and for every 12 that I have, I may have went through 15 or 16 to really find the ones that I like. And then a lot of times I'll roll them on a spine checker that I have. And I've just found that it's a lot of it's a lot of work to go through it's a lot of extra steps to go through and then there's just a lot of variables on how something flies sometimes you can put a point in and some points sometimes when you put your point in it's got glue towards one side of the shaft more than the other seems like that's that's affected some of my groups in the past sometimes if maybe one fletch is laying a little bit different i've just found that as long as I really find arrows where I don't have any that are out of the tolerance specs of the brand or what the arrow advertises. So I really like to find arrows that are all within a thousandth. Um, even, even shafts like say you pick a shaft that the plus or minus factor is um, plus or minus three thousandths. That means that's the worst side of the spectrum. So you could certainly still go through more of those arrows and find the ones that are better out of that particular brand. There's been some times where I've shot arrows that I really like and they're, they're only a plus or minus three thousandths, but I'll go through several of them until I find 12 that all spin just absolutely perfectly. And I find that as long as I'm doing that and I weigh the arrows and make sure that the weight is consistent between shafts, then I don't really have a problem with that. And that, um, that actually factors um, all the way back in to when I shot 90 meters in tournament archery. Um, you know, I can tell you that at that distance, you figure out really fast how relevant a lot of this stuff is. And I've just found that spinning an arrow tells me a lot more than actually checking the spine by floating them and doing them that way and years ago 
the way you're talking about doing it or when you're asking me why I don't do it, years ago, it was so important then. Whereas now, there isn't near the importance because there's so much higher quality standards with these arrows coming out of the factories. Unless you're buying arrows that are you know, pretty much already sorted out and going in um, package deals to like Cabela's or Bass Pros or something like that. A lot of times these companies, Shields or Dicks, if they buy their own label arrow, there's a very good chance that the actual tolerance of that arrow is not going to be that good. And those are the ones that you really want to sift through. You know, if you're at an archery shop where they have a huge pile of arrows um, sitting in boxes, then I would take advantage of that and actually go and spin some of them. You know, learn how to learn how to spin them properly on your finger and feel for that um, that vibration and that chime. And you know, if if it's sitting there doing that, or if you do have a spine tester, if your shop has a spine tester. Just ask them to say, hey, you know, can I, would you mind sorting through some of these? I want to really get the straightest ones. A lot of times they're not going to care, especially, you know, this is kind of a good tip for you. I never like to go to an archery shop or a specialty shop when they're busy. You know, I would never, um, there was a couple things there. One, when I was on a budget years ago, um, when I first started uh, working at you know my first archery company, you know me and my buddies would we'd always try to get deals on different things from shops, and there was there was local shops that we used, and you know even back when we were really into paintball guns and stuff, I just found that if we went if we went to shops on their slowest days, and sometimes you know we might just take an extra hour um, off our you know, we'll just dock an hour and we'd go for a two hour lunchtime. We'd go to a shop and you go in there when they're slow and you have a lot more time to talk to people. You have a lot more time to maybe, um, get things that you want. And then you also have the ability to negotiate price and, you know, really kind of, especially when you go in there with a bunch of buddies. Um, I remember we would go into shops and, you know, especially if two or three of us all wanted the same thing, we'd go in when it was really slow. We'd be able to have the time for them to take them out of the package and show them to us and all that stuff. And then, you know, if it was something we wanted to buy, we could say, okay, well, the three of us are all going to buy. What can you do? And, you know, chances are, if no one else is sitting in that store listening to that conversation, um, then, you know, I think, then I think, um, you have a way better chance to to get what you want at a better price. So that's what I would recommend um, from that aspect. The other thing too, hold on, let me get back onto my get back onto my questions. My phone just refreshed here, I'm trying to get back on. There was actually a good question here. Um, well, when it comes to arrows. If you go through the ones that they have sitting out in big boxes, you'll be able to feel the ones that are crappy when you spin them. Or especially if they have a roller. You know, you could screw a tip on the end of them and roll them if the tip's sitting there wobbling. All those are indicators of the spine not being consistent. 
Um, now, if you're a super, super picky archer, you want to, you really want to just like make match grade, hundred percent match grade arrows, then a lot of those things are important to factor in and you may want to do it. So I'm not saying there's a specific reason. It's not like I'm not doing it because it's pointless. There, there is credibility to doing it. I haven't found at the distances that I've shot that I really need to spend that extra time floating everything, marking them, waiting for them to totally dry off before I build them. Like all that stuff for me was time consuming. I could take the arrows that I have, spin them all, kind of the ones that felt kind of crappy. I'd put a little tick on the vein with my marker just so that I knew that they didn't feel that good. I would shoot them all down there. And then if arrows are, you know, if a certain arrow is out of the group all the time, then I just start turning the knock. I'll index the knock, shoot it. And you sometimes you can get that arrow to come right back into the group. Sometimes every time you turn the knock, it just goes to a different area. So what I found is if the spine isn't consistent, the arrow doesn't group. It's, it's rare that you can pull it exactly into the center of the group. If it's an arrow where the spine is inconsistent in that arrow, when you turn it, it just ma it just means it kind of moves to a different area on the paper, um, and sometimes it doesn't always go to the center. So I really feel like just shooting them all down there, and then those ones that that are like that, just I always put an X on the end of the vein so that I just know it's kind of one of my cull arrows. And those are the arrows that I have in my quiver. If I, you know, if I'm ever on a hunt, and you know, I, I always have one arrow in my quiver that's got like a bludgeon on it, or you know, kind of a small game head um, for whacking like you know skunks or raccoons or whatever else. Um, those are those arrows. Or if I'm um, if I'm out practicing with buddies and everybody's shooting at the same target. Like that's the arrow that I'm willing to sacrifice or the ones that don't necessarily group with everything else. So that's really why I do it that way. Um, I'm not saying that it's a waste of time. Obviously, there is credibility to it. Um, one of the better archery facilities in the world, the Biter facility in Germany, Andreas is there. Um, Andreas actually spends a considerable amount of time um doing spine checks for different types of arrows and you know he he's told me the ones that are for sure the best and the highest quality um, and that he has the most consistency with and those are pretty much the same ones that I shoot all the time anyway um, I won't get into which ones he says are good or not good I just know that the ones I shoot I shoot for a reason and I don't feel like I have to put a, a super ton of time into that as well um, let's see here. I'm going to look through, I'm getting ready to have to jet here in a minute. I'm going to work on more of these questions over these next few days. I'll give you guys some more podcasts. Um, but let's see here. There was one that I saw that stuck out. There's, you guys have a ton of good ones. Believe me, there's tons of good ones. And this is, this is actually what's going to be so cool about being able to go to the new um, the new web platform once this thing launches, um, just so everyone else out there knows, there's going to be tiers 
to the new web platform. There's certainly going to be um, an area where it's free, but there's also going to be two other tiers um, based off subscription. And pretty much those tiers um, are going to be able to get you more and more access into these things. So I'll actually do a lot more private podcasts or video podcasts um, for certain levels. Um, so we'll be able to get into more of these questions and I'll also be able to to set up and prepare for some of those questions specifically to where I can actually show you the difference. For example, um, you know, I would because it's a because it's a platform where I know you guys are investing in me, then obviously I'm investing time back. So um, if there was a question that I saw was really relevant to spine, I would just you know get a tub and show you guys how that works and kind of show you the difference and have a spec um, you know a spine tester and being able to show you that. So you know that's something that's going to be coming forward. But remember um, a reminder: make sure you guys, if you're listening, fifteenth uh, seven p.m. Let's uh, do this live feed. It's going to be a good one. Um, so I'm going to, for this next question, I'm actually, this is Magical Matthew 123 um, says, I'm about to start fletching my own arrows. Um, I'm using the Nocturne Ready Rock segments as my guide. Any tips for ordering and setting up a Bitsenberger jig? Also, how does your arrow component selection vary from indoor to 3D and loving my silverback? So appreciate that dude um hope you and your bro are doing good um so there's a couple things there one i really really like that question on how to properly set up a jig so what i'm going to do is i'm actually going to order a brand new jig today from um from lancaster and i'm going to tell them i need that by wednesday if any of you lancaster dudes are listening I need my jig by Wednesday, um, and I'm going to go ahead and set that jig up brand new and show you some of the techniques on how to do that, what I look for, etc., uh, so that we can get you through that part uh, pretty easy. I guess from there, I'm glad you're liking your silverback, and when it comes to actual, you know, you talk about components for 3D versus um, indoor, so... I don't know if you're meaning specifically components, meaning arrow choice. So the arrows that I'm shooting for indoor archery, they're a lot heavier. I'm waiting on the new um, 23s. I haven't got any yet, but the new um, the new Easton 23s, I'm really wanting to see because I actually feel like that arrow will be one of the first true crossover arrows that I'll shoot indoor or for 3D both. Um, I haven't got them yet, so I don't know that for sure, but I'm pretty sure based off the specs and, um, when I talk to Steve Anderson, I'm pretty sure that I know that I'm going to like them for both. If you're wanting one for both, a fat boy is also a very good option. Um, but really the main difference between indoors and 3d is obviously with 3d, you do have to factor in speed. Um, I really like to be around that 280 number for speed. So you have to, um, you know, with indoor archery, you're shooting a 2315. My points are about 200 grains. So this is a super slow arrow. It's just focused on, 
you know, finding that mark really fast at 18 meters. And it's specific for that versus 3D, you know, an arrow that's that big, that slow, it would have a lot more wind drift outside in a 3D situation. So, you know, you'd be better off having a fat boy. I would personally say if you're really focused on just close distance stuff, having um, more helical or a bigger fletch or more fletch is going to be really important versus if you're shooting 3D, having less drag and still have steering is, you know, it's kind of that happy medium. You want to have steering on the shaft, but you also don't want to have so much drag or so much surface area that you're getting blown off the target as well. So there's kind of a fine line there. The Max Pro vein is a great vein um, for 3D archery versus like right now, I'm actually shooting a, a three inch Max Stealth on my setup, but um, the arrow that I'm holding in my hand right here, and this is what I set up for my buddy Justin. Um, I did a custom build for Justin, so I spent about two full days on his bow, and he literally uh, didn't have much input at all. He just said, "Build me what, build me what will make this podium the most accurate it can be for indoor." He was specific about that. So um, I did a lot of different testing and trial. We ended up um, settling on a 2315 with a four fletch. Um, and because it was a four fletch, I actually went to the knock on elevate rest set in a limb driven with the freak bar. So the bar, the actual rest is behind the tech riser. Um, it is limb driven and he's shooting a four fletch with a pretty, uh, a pretty good offset and it's shooting absolute darts. Um, I actually like to set up so much that I'm going to be making some tweaks on mine. I'm actually going to be switching my target bow over to a limb driven system, which will be the first time in a long time that I've done that. But I really want to do some experimenting and see if I can get my setup uh, to shoot as well as I had his shooting. So I appreciate everybody out there. Um, I got to shut this down. I've got an appointment I've got to be at um, this afternoon, um, which is I don't think I can announce what that's about yet, but for those of you who are in Iowa, for those of you who have anything to do with ISU, could be cool. It's going to be cool. So, all right, everybody, appreciate it. Um, thanks so much for the support. Again, uh, live feed, make sure you tune in. Got some cool stuff happening. Um, actually, also this weekend, um, I'm going to be doing some probably be doing some live feeds and doing uh giving you guys a little little behind the scenes look at um some one-on-one -on -one stuff that i'm doing with some nhl players so it's gonna be pretty cool uh i got a we got a blackhawks game and in chicago we're gonna we're gonna be shooting some bows in shy town and cool stuff like that so uh, appreciate everybody thanks so much Make sure if you get the silverback email, get on it. All right, see you later. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com